gather together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, the Schuster Herald Podcast, it's Superman, the Carousel Podcast, the Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen Podcast. The world's best podcast and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. Greetings, gang, and welcome to the 99th episode of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your lovable host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today we are going to talk about, well, you know, Superman in, in the in the Bronze Age, because that's what we do. But first up, I do need to mention our sponsor for today's episode, and that is In Stock Trades. In Stock Trades provides you with the comic book trades and showcases at Omnibuy and essentials and any collected edition book that you would want at greatly discounted prices. For example, one of the issues that, well, the issue that Dave will be talking about today is reprinted in a book called Showcase Presents DC Comics Presents Trade Paperback Volume 2. That issue has a price of $19.99 and reprints uh, DC Comics Presents numbers 27 through 50 plus DC Comics Presents annual number one in lovely black and white if if you like that kind of thing. I'm not really a fan, but still, if you like that thing, you can get all those issues for 20 bucks. Or you could go to InStock Trades where they have it for $10.99, which is a whopping 45% off. Which uh, is kind of cool if you ask me. So make sure you check them out at InStockTrades.com. And also keep in mind that any order over $50 has free shipping in the United States. Yeah. Next up, we've got... Well, the ironic thing is that instead of being able to call this feedback with Russell Bragg... Well, other people left feedback this time. Sorry, Russell. Maybe next time. So first up, we've got... Anna, she writes in and says, Long-time listener, first-time commentator. Just wanted to drop a line to say how much I enjoy your podcasts. I am both an old Superman fan and a new one. I remember enjoying his adventures as a child through the Super Friends, the Richard Donner films, and those free Radio Shack comics that were distributed to elementary school kids to show us the greatness that was the Tandy computer, which I actually almost covered on the show, but I decided not to. Sorry, Anna. Anyway, she also she goes on to say, Like many, I drifted away until the death of Superman storyline that occurred during my high school years brought me back. The New 52 is a somewhat bittersweet time for Superman fans, and although I still keep up, sometimes I really miss my Superman. Your podcast keeps him alive and reminds me all I have to do is dig through my hard-fought f- collection to bring him back. Thank you for that. And there's a note here. Being a girl attempting to collect comics in the 1990s was not always a simple task. Many a time I was run off from a comic shop by a sexist dealer who always had an opinion as to what comics a girl should or should not read. Picking up the books for your boyfriend? 
Thank Rao, things have changed, and when I go to a Comic-Con, I'm always thrilled to see young girls reading Superman. Thank you, Anna. I am glad you're enjoying the show. I'm glad we're keeping the Bronze Age Superman alive, even though it's only going to be for a little bit longer. So thank you, Anna. Glad to have you aboard. Next up is Russell Bragg, and he says, Hi, Charlie and Dave. You were missed last time. I'm honored for you to jokingly name this segment after me. I'm sorry I seem to be the one that constantly emails you. I'm sure you'll get a truckload of email to celebrate your 100th episode next time. I wanted to thank you for answering my question last time. I looked up the Solomon Grundy Once Pants 2 video on YouTube. I don't remember it at all. It was fun to watch, though. Oh, and I looked it up for you since you hadn't heard it before. I don't say it too often, but no soap comes from the word soap having had several slang meanings down through the years. In the U.S. during the middle of the 19th century, soap was used to mean money. It's first recorded about 1860, but by then was probably well established. So somebody who said, no soap, meant something like, no, I haven't any money, or no, I won't give you a loan. The modern sense, nothing doing, not a hope, no chance, is generalization. Americans have kept no soap, but have forgotten the sense of soap that it sprang from. I didn't know its original meaning either. It's just how I've heard it used. So I should have said I had no luck finding an earlier reference between Superman and Aquaterra. For the first time, I was able to read along with your synopsis. I don't think I had anything to add, but it was fun to listen that way. I always liked the cover to 320 and its opening splash page. I liked both stories as well as your synopses. I used to have issue 322, but not anymore, and I can't remember what happened, so I'll rely on you to enlighten me today. Well, thanks in advance. Guess it's that's all for this time. Wow, next episode is the big 100. Can't wait to listen, and to 99 as well. Talk to you next time. Russell. Well, thanks, Russell. And thank you for looking that up. I don't think I have ever heard it in my 30... don't want to say it, but in my almost 34 years of life, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. But, I don't know, maybe I've been sheltered. But anyway, I want to thank uh, both of our listeners for writing in today. And uh, hopefully you'll enjoy this episode enough to write in again. That's the that's the that's the hope anyway. But before we do that, I've got a couple promos so that you can listen to other shows that are really good that you should be listening to in case you aren't already listening to them. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. You know, a dear friend once said to me, "It's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another." And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. (laughs) One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. It was the dawn of the Third Age of Comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. 
All right, our first issue this episode is Superman number 322 with a cover date of April 1978 and an on-sale date of January 9th, 1978 and a cover price of 35 cents. The title of this issue is Laser War Over Metropolis, written by Marty Pasco, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Frank Schiermonte, lettered by Ben Oda, Car- Carolist, colorist Jerry Serpy, and editor Julie Schwartz. Picking up right where it last issue left off, Superman is still plummeting toward a very pointy clock tower. Well, you know how they say when you are near death, your life flashes before your eyes? Well, when it happens to Superman, he just recalls the events of the last two issues, which allows him to realize two things. Number one, despite that he, what he said earlier, Parasite could not have drained all of Superman's powers because the last time he tried that back in the 60s, he blew up, and that even includes the version of the story from the Filmation cartoon. Number two, this must mean that Superman wasn't 100% super in the first place. Somehow, he deduces correctly, I might add, as we find out later, that Parasite just made him think his powers were going out of control, so basically the funky suntan lotion he made last issue knocked him down to well below his normal power levels. Fortunately, he didn't think it would be necessary to put lotion on the soles of his feet, so Superman removes his boots and... points his feet to the sky, restoring enough of his invulnerability to prevent him from being impaled, but not enough to prevent him from being knocked unconscious after slamming through the clock tower and crashing to the ground. Half an hour later, at 10 o'clock a.m., we catch up with Lois and Perry, who have been picked up by the Coast Guard from Mooney Island. The captain explains the whole laser test better than the explanation we got last issue. See, when the unmanned ship shoots its laser at the LDS, the beam should be reflected back at the ship and destroying it. Even if the test fails, the beam should still bounce off the LDS at such an angle as to pass harmlessly into the Atlantic Ocean. Technically, I think Aquaman and probably Laurie Lamaris would have something to say about that, but this isn't Aquaman's book and Laurie isn't in the story, so apparently no one cares. Anyway, the info about the LDS is no longer top secret because the parasite's threat from last issue has gone public. Pay him $1 billion by noon, or he will change the angle of the LDS so that the laser beam hits Metropolis instead, which would basically destroy it in a giant mushroom cloud. According to the art, anyway. And now, they can't cancel the test because the machinery that Superman busted up during his fit of rage was the manual override system, which just sucks. Speaking of Superman, when we next catch up to him, it's 10.45 a.m. and he's at Clark Kent's apartment, showering his chemical solution off of his body while moaning about the humiliation of having to ride the bus home in his Superman costume. Of course, that doesn't explain the excuse he would have had to come up with for why Superman was visiting Clark's apartment through the front door instead of flying in through a window, but we don't go into that. So while Superman heads north to his fortress to see if he really is back to his normal super self, we check back in on Mooney Island. It's now 11 a.m., and Parasite is using the heat vision he stole from Superman to melt the ground under the guards, causing them to sink into what is essentially molten lava, although somehow their MP helmets survived the experience. As he makes his way into the LDS control room, we check back in with Superman, who, in his weakened condition, has taken a whole 15 minutes to get to the fortress, where he builds a power gauge to monitor his power levels. As he heads back to Metropolis, we shift our attention once again to the roof of City Hall at 11.45 a.m., where Mayor Harkness delivers $1 billion in a big suitcase-type thing to Inspector Henderson, who hopes to be able to reach Mooney Island by helicopter in the next 15 minutes. Unfortunately, he doesn't make it in time, and at noon, Parasite activates the controls to maneuver the LDS. Overhead, Superman's telescopic vision allows him to see Parasite's strangely Caucasian hand activating the control. Even though Superman's power levels are only now at 75%, he has only one course of action. As he dives into the ocean, the rocket fires its laser at the LDS, where it is deflected earthward, but instead of hitting Metropolis, the beam misses the Earth completely. See, despite not being at 100%, Superman still has enough superpower to move the Earth out of the way without causing all sorts of catastrophic disasters and, you know, it shooting off into space or messing with the moon or anything like that. While he gently pushes the Earth back into place, Parasite, who still has some of Superman's powers, flies out to Henderson's helicopter and takes the $1 billion anyway because, you know, why not? 
But before he can get too far, Superman grabs him and flies them away. Even though this allows Parasite to absorb a little bit more of Superman's power, it does allow the Man of Steel to grab his power prism and use it to restore the fragment of his intellectual makeup that the Parasite had stolen. See, and as I kind of alluded to earlier, the Parasite didn't actually increase Superman's power. He just took Superman's... Uh, he just took away Superman's inhibitions, preventing him from being able to hold back like he almost always does to ensure no danger comes from his powers. So, rather than actually increasing his powers, Superman was just using his powers at their full capacity. Anyway, Superman destroys the prism, meaning that Parasite now has to touch the Man of Steel to be able to steal any more of his power. So Parasite wraps Superman up in some fencing, because apparently even at 50%, I guess that's going to hold him, and prepares to touch Superman again, but Superman prevents that by hitting Parasite with a blast of heat vision to hold him back until he's strong enough to bust out of the fencing. Then he takes to the skies, followed closely behind by Parasite, as both begin to fire heat vision at each other with heat beams, heat beams? With heat beams intense enough for the normally invisible heat vision to be visible to the naked eye. And in one panel, we kind of get a recreation of the awesome cover by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise Be His Name, which is cool, but it would have been nice if it lasted longer than one panel. Anyway, moving on. This battle gives Superman time to power up while Parasite uses up his powers, eventually having to land on the roller coaster tracks at the nearby amusement pier. You remember the merry-go-round from, like, a couple issues ago? Well, same pier. Then Superman sends this coaster slamming into the Parasite at high speed, knocking him out. After coming to, Parasite sees Superman at the top of, the of one of the hills of the coaster and climbs his way up toward him, but it turns out that it's actually Solomon Grundy wearing that extra Superman cape, who quickly knocks the villain out with a quam to the head. It turns out that Parasite was out for five minutes, giving Superman time to retrieve Grundy from where he's been the last couple of issues, and promised to fulfill the Big Lug's heart's desire in exchange for his assistance. After turning Parasite and the money over to the authorities, Superman takes Grundy to another world, which has a lighter gravity. See, Superman had figured that the reason that Grundy was so big on getting Superman's cape was that he thought it would allow him to fly. Which actually, according to urban legend, happened to real people in the real world back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and the aughts and now. Anyway, now on this other world, Grundy can fly to his heart's content. As Superman heads back to Earth, we make a quick return to the lighthouse on Mooney Island to see an unknown, one-armed higher-up from the military vowing revenge on Superman for comprising the LDS project. But we're going to leave that particular plot thread to dangle for a little longer as we join Superman as he arrives at Lois's apartment, where he gives her a Kryptonian wish ring, which apparently is very much like a mood ring, but instead of changing colors, it allows you to see whatever she's thinking or wishing. And uh, she's right then wish uh, wishing that they were making out, which happens, I guess. And Superman apologizes for them not seeing much of each other lately, which Lois remedies by offering to make him dinner. But rather than the beef bourguignon that she offers to make, Superman shows her how to make a dish his Kryptonian mother used to make, which has no name, but apparently calls for a Krypton the beef of a Kryptonian animal, but apparently pork chop will work just fine. Alright, first of all, like I said earlier, the cover to this issue is beautiful. No one's inking this except for maybe Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. And it is just a beautiful cover. The Superman and Parasite are firing heat vision at each other. Unfortunately, they're both missing, so it's causing a lot of destruction. So people in their groovy 70s get-ups are having to dodge and duck and fall over. And it's destroying a lot of things. Now, when I first saw this cover, I kind of got ticked because uh, they say Superman versus the Parasite in a duel to the death, the weapon laser vision. Now, if there's one thing that I have nitpicked about in the entire time I've been doing this show, starting with episode one, is when they get either the power, when they either get how the powers work wrong, or when they get the names wrong. Super hearing cannot be blocked by lead, just like it's heat vision, not laser vision. 
I don't know who would have been responsible for the cover copy, but apparently it wasn't someone super duper familiar with Superman. But I'm going to let that go. Now, the splash page was actually pretty cool. It kind of gives you all the information you need to know, almost. I mean, it doesn't explain it, but the images it gives pretty much tells you everything you need to know before the issue starts. Superman's falling towards the pointy clock tower. Uh, the space shuttle type thing shooting the laser at the LDS is shooting the laser at the LDS and it's bouncing off towards Earth. Uh, we see the Metropolis blowing up. And in the center, we see Parasite's smiling purple face. Page six. I don't have too many page by page notes, so let's just take a second. Okay, so first of all, Superman simulated because he had to sit on a bus as Superman. Then he's humiliated because he used to be able to swim in lava, and now he's reduced to an ordinary shower to get the chemical solution off of him. Well, dude, it happens. And actually, this is kind of interesting because I think the only other, one of the only few times I've actually seen Superman take a shower uh, was also drawn by Kurt Swan, and that would be in Superman Volume 2, Issue 50. Because, uh, well, Clark had lost his powers, so he had to actually take a shower because he'd gotten a little worked up over some monster in the subway system. Also, though, to test his if his powers are working or not, uh, Superman basically busts through the glass door for his shower, which kind of is messed up. Because I mean, that's just property damage that's un unnecessary. Also, we do see his hair messed up, which is something else you don't see too often in the Bronze Age. However, the deaths of these guys in the Molten Lava, also on page 6 and the top of page 7, is rather gruesome. Instead of melting the people, he melts the parasite melts the ground and causes the guys to fall into the lava. That's just... Ugh. And the... Yeah, the, the the looks of shock on their face and the arg is... Ugh. I'm sure someone else could have done better with the art and made it a little more dramatic, but I think it pretty much works. Um, <clears throat> page 8. Okay, now I don't know how often Mayor Harkness has been used. He, this is the first time the mayor has been given a name, I believe, since I've been on, the, on any of the issues I've covered on this show. But I do believe Mayor Harkness was mentioned when they did that uh, flashback in the right around his 60th anniversary when they did the, uh, when Superman got his normal powers back and then was split between four different timelines and I think Adventures of Superman was handling the um, Silver Age and I think that was Mayor Harkness on, in one of those issues. So that was cool. And of course we have Inspector Henderson who is wearing his signature white hat and orange suit and blue tie. So that's pretty cool. For some reason this also made me think about the, um, the scene from the little piece of home episode of Superman, uh, of the Superman animated series, when um, those guys with the rocket packs steal the money, and then Superman has to go after them. It was. It just made me think of that. Oh, and also on page eight, uh, like I said, for some reason they miscolored the hand of the parasite, who not only has fingernails now, but also has a Caucasian hand. So that's weird. Okay, so if Superman is only at 75% and can move the Earth, what the heck was he going to do it with 100%? I mean, jeez. And I, I don't think we've seen him do this too often, but... Well, not in on this show. He doesn't do it too often in the Bronze Age, but he does do it a few times. Usually they don't have him do anything like this just because of how extreme it is. But I'm thinking that... He could have seriously destroyed the Earth doing this, rather than just having Metropolis destroyed. He would have. He could have made the situation thousands of times worse. So we just won't talk about it too much. Okay. Oh, and another little. I I kind of like this. It's kind of sad, but page eleven, when Superman and Parasite are fighting. This is before they do the laser battle, and when they're they're actually back at Mooney Island as the Parasite's about to wrap Superman up in the fencing. 
Um, if you look below Superman, you can see what looks to be solidified ground with a bunch of MP helmets sitting on the ground. And, uh, yeah, so that little detail stayed there to remind us of what the parasite did. I kind of like the detail on that. It's kind of interesting that they remembered, because I wasn't even thinking about it, and I can completely forgotten about it by the time I read it, by the time I read through to that page. Uh, I like, this is a, this is a pretty interesting way to get rid of Solomon Grundy. I don't know that he ever comes back, but uh, if you ever need him, he's up on some other planet, so that's going to make it very difficult for him to get back to Earth. But we we do have a living Solomon Grundy on Earth-1 now, or in the Earth-1 universe anyway, and he's flying. He's, it's low-level flying, but he is flying, so that's actually kind of cool, and Superman thinks that maybe he'll become a superhero. I wouldn't hold my breath. Although Superman can hold his breath for a very long time. All right. Well, that uh, let's see. Looking through the letters page, I don't see anyone that we don't already know. But overall, I pretty much like this issue. It it shows that Superman inadvertently made the situation worse. And I'm not talking about moving the planet, but his his destructive ways a couple issues ago pretty much prevented the laser from being stopped, which was kind of cool. It gives Superman more of a uh, more of a responsibility with his power, I guess. You know, the whole great power comes great responsibility thing, blah, blah, blah. Thank you, Spider-Man. But I, I kind of like the way that worked. Uh, there's something that comes up in the next issue, too, that um, I mean, really plays that one home. It's almost like... Uh, Pasco either had already written or really it was coming up with the ideas for next issue when he came up with that little plot point. But uh, overall, I just thought it was great. The art was pretty fantastic. And the writing was very nice as well. And it was it's nice to see that Lois and uh, Superman are going are gonna to start getting back together, uh, which we haven't seen hardly ever in he in this at all. Uh, on my on this show because we keep jumping around and we never got to a point where they were really dating so here they're going to be dating so that's kind of cool uh there is a lot of stuff in the letters page hinting at superman and lois getting married but of course we know that uh that's uh the earth 2 superman and lois so whatever but that's gonna do it for this issue so let's play a couple more promos and we'll be right back with the very next issue. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. Laser sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fantasy. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays. Available the first Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.com. We would be honored if you would join us. Look, 
up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Superman number 323 had a cover date of May 1978 and an on-sale date of January 6, 1978, with another cover price of 35 cents. The Man with the Self-Destruct Mind is the title of the story. It was written by Marty Pascoe, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by guest inker Dan Atkins, lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Jerry Serpe, and edited by Julie Schwartz. Our story begins in some hidden place, at some hidden point in time in the recently hidden past, where a strangely garbed man blasts a Superman statue using a mind blast. And as is given away if you look at the cover, he is the atomic skull, and the mind blast was a result of a seizure. Unfortunately, the only scientists who could possibly help him were sent to prison by Superman. As such, the atomic skull has vowed to kill the Man of Steel. Speaking of our favorite Kryptonian, with no offense meant to Supergirl, but this show isn't Supergirl in the Bronze Age, he's currently millions of miles away in space, tracing the, tracing the path of the kryptonite that has once again begun falling to Earth. Wearing a suit of leaden armor, he soon finds the source, the artificial Krypton-2 that he created out of kryptonite way back in issue 255, which Dave and I actually covered back in episode 29. The planet had exploded at some point, sending new chunks of kryptonite to Earth. Satisfied by his findings, Superman heads back to Earth, destroying his armor in the process, which I, personal th which I personally think was a dumb move, but whatever, and returns to WGBS. After all, it's now 5.45, and he and Lana are supposed to be on the air at 6. We also get a little panel in which producer Josh Coyle gets a message that Oscar Asherman will be ready for his remote report at 6.45. Now let me take a minute to introduce Oscar, because I don't think that he's been mentioned on the show before, or if he has, it was been passing. Oscar is WGBS's meteorologist and science editor. He's also a recurring background character. He first showed up, I believe, in a story in which a Flash... Flash villain Weather Wizard was using him to basically lure Superman to Central City uh, so that Weathermaster could use some kind of black lightning to turn Superman evil so he would kill the Flash. It's a, It was a Carrie Bates story. I want to say it's from like 1975-ish, maybe? Can't think of the issue number, but it's not a bad story, but... Um, that was the first time Oscar, I believe, was introduced. He does become a recurring character after that. He is the weatherman, and he's their go-to guy when they needed science talk before Star became a big deal. Anyway, he's at Star Labs right now to interview Dr. Clyburn, including talking about the matter teleportation ray that Albert Michaels had developed for the government and had recently been used by Metello. But when they begin the remote at 645... The building is attacked by Skull's Skull Saucer. Moving at super speed, Clark goes to the makeup room and adds a light coating of makeup to his face, making it look as though he's gone pale. Returning to the news desk without anyone realizing that he had left, this makeup trick works well enough for Josh to send Clark home, which seems really odd to do during the middle of a live newscast, but, you know, whatever. Quickly switching to Superman, he arrives on the scene as the Skull Saucer has completely sheared away one of the walls of the building. As it starts to shear away at another wall, which this time faces a crowded street, Superman dives down and picks up the chunk of street that the people and some cars were standing on and flies it out of the way just as the wall in question crashes to the ground. Dropping them off, Superman heads back to Star in time to see Dr. Clyburn being pulled up to the Skull Saucer in a tractor beam. But before he can get to her, he's hit in the face by a powerful lightning blast that is actually strong enough to give him a small seizure and give the saucer time to get away. Fortunately, Oscar's still there to point out that his Geiger counter, which 
I don't know if he packed it or if he just found one in the, in the you know, star lab, but whatever. Uh, it's picking up faint traces of radioactivity where the beam hit the wall when it was sharing it, which means that Superman can now trace the ship, even though it could mean Superman is heading for a trap. Meanwhile, in the skulls, in the skull saucer, Dr. Clyburn has led to the ship's power source, the brain of the atomic skull, who's quickly revealed to be Dr. Albert Michaels. Outside, Superman has tracked the saucer to Cape Edmonton, the probing ground where Star tests spacecraft and satellite components for NASA. Busting into the underground structure, Superman finds the saucer's docking chamber Then, when suddenly a giant shadow envelops Superman. While he's shocked by the arrival of the shadow's source, Superman is hit by twin beams of kryptonite radiation, knocking him out for hours. When he comes to, he's greeted by the atomic skull, who turns on a monitor to show the Man of Steel that Dr. Clyburn's limbs have been tied to four different sections of wall that will soon begin to separate, which will divide and quarter her. After he teleports away, Superman begins following the pipes along the corridors to find her. Along the corridor, he comes across a brick wall. Punching through the wall sets a lead-lined container to launch down the pipe, but Superman can't investigate for long because he soon comes upon a skull agent freezing to death inside of a glass refrigerator. Afraid to use his super strength again because he doesn't want to set something else in motion, he uses a blast of his heat vision to expand the glass until it shatters. But this causes the fluid in the pipe to be vaporized to steam, once again causing something to happen. Before we can find out what, some sort of protoplasmic blob, complete with flecks of kryptonite dust, falls into the caped Kryptonian. A quick blast of freeze breath contains the goop, while a super speed sprint down the corridor burns off the goop on Superman. Entering the room that Dr. Clyburn is tied up in, Superman cuts the cables that would pull the walls apart at super speed but has to make quick work of untying her inside because two of the walls then slam together. Fortunately, Super Speed saves the day again, and Superman gets her out in time. But before they can catch their breaths, they hear the launching of a rocket above ground just as Superman gets hit by a blast from the atomic skull. He then monologues to explain that the blasts only occur when he's having a brain seizure, and that he suffers from a rare nervous disorder which manifests itself as a kind of short-circuiting of the electric impulses of his brain. In exchange for supervising the kryptonite pipeline project, Skull implanted a device made of radium, which seems like a stupid thing for a scientist to allow to happen, but whatever, into his brain to treat his disorder by acting as a kind of neural pacemaker. Still keeping up? Good, because I was lost by this point. But anyway. Well, soon after the operation, the implant malfunction, and it now mutates his brainwaves to create those brain blasts of his. But this disease is progressive, and with every seizure he gets, he gets one step closer to death. And since Superman has jailed the only men who could prepare the implant, he has vowed to kill Superman rather than use his brain blast power to break the men out of jail. Because you would think that'd be smarter, but... What do I know? Also, that rocket that just launched has an explosive nose cone filled with kryptonite. Once it reaches oh, about 500 miles up, it's supposed to explode, pulverizing the kryptonite and dispersing it around the globe, where gravity will hold it up just outside of the ionosphere permanently. This will neutralize Superman's powers for as long as he remains on Earth, which is where he will have to be since he wouldn't be able to get through the kryptonite, especially since he destroyed that lead armor earlier in the story. And the fun part of all this is that the kryptonite in the nose cone is the kryptonite that Skull has been collecting for the last several issues, which is what was in that cylinder that required Superman's super punch to load it into the rocket because they couldn't just pick it up and put it in there. They had to devise this whole thing. Then the other pipe that Superman encountered contained the fuel, which had to be superheated and then supercooled before it could be fed into the rocket, which Superman also inadvertently took care of, and then freeing Dr. Clyburn triggered the launching mechanism, making Superman responsible for his own doom. To make matters worse, the atomic skull then experiences another seizure and hits Superman with a brain blast powerful enough to actually knock him out for the second time this issue. And, to ensure that Superman never regains consciousness, he opens another door, allowing Titano, the super ape with the kryptonite eyes, and the source of the shadow from earlier in the story, to enter the room. 
And it is that point, my friends, that it is we are to be continued. And this time, you will have to wait a month, because next episode, we're not covering the next issue. It's like you were actually there. Okay, notes for this issue. Now, I, I made a couple of, of snide comments. There's some, you know, lapses in brain usage, it seems, in a few places. But I really think this is an awesome story. The, stu the way that they trick Superman into doing all this stuff, therefore making him responsible for his own doom, is pretty awesome. I should start off, though, with the cover of the issue, which again is drawn by by Mr. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, and it looks fantastic. Uh, it's a little different than what you would expect, though, because this indicates that the energy coming out of the atomic skull is electrical energy, which they didn't really insinuate. Well, I guess they kind of did in the story. They just didn't come right out and say it. And it it's, looks like it's hurting Superman. This is one of the first Superman covers I ever saw not in the 30s to the 80s book that I talked about with Michael Bailey a few uh, several episodes ago, but I had gotten this book called Comic Book Superheroes from one of my middle school book fairs, and it basic and I think I've mentioned this on the show, but it basically had little chapters about uh, telling you brief histories of all of, uh, of a bunch of the main popular characters in comics at the time. There was Superman, Batman. Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, and this was pre-Kyle Rayner, but post-Death of Superman. So, just in that little bit of time. Uh, then, you know, you had Spider-Man, the X-Men, uh, the Ninja Turtles, I want to say Spawn was in there, Namor was in there, I believe Cap was in there, and maybe even the Avengers, I don't remember everybody, but... The Superman chapter had lots of issue covers, uh, and I always made sure, made it a priority to purchase the covers that were on there just because I thought it was cool. I've always wanted to read the stories that were inside the issues. Uh, this was one of the covers. They, they had this one, they had one where uh, the, the issue where, and I can't think of the number off the top of my head, but the issue where Batgirl comes to Metropolis. And, uh, the, you know, they had some panels like uh, the issue cover of uh, Superman, I want to say Superman 80, which I think is the first, no, 81, has to be 81, uh, it's the first issue um, where Superman has come back, it's the first issue of Superman, where the, where Superman's come back from the dead, which is cool, um, but yeah, this, uh, and then of course it has a panel from one of the issues during Exile, but this one was the one that I thought was the coolest looking one. And it is even better, huge, instead of teeny-weeny, because they had to fit a several covers on a one-page, plus text. Now, I will point out that while the design for the suit, it doesn't... I mean, the different artist between Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, and Kurt Swan doesn't change the look of most of the outfit too much. It's the headgear that is kind of messed up. The way Lopez draws it, it looks like his head is actually a skull and he's wearing a hard helmet. And the way that Kurt Swan draws it is that both the helmet and the skull kind of jawbone and everything is actually part of the helmet. So he makes it, he draws it kind of big and a little more distorted to in, to ensure that, make it, to make it look as though it's actually covering his real head because that's basically what it is. It's not really his skull. It's actually part of the helmet, but I don't know. Lopez did not draw it that way. So it's kind of hard to say who did it better. I kind of like Lopez's version better just because it's less bulky looking. Uh, Kurt Swan's version looks like it came from some low budget 70s sci-fi thing, which is kind of my problem with it. But other than that, uh, see. This has got to be the second or third time we've seen someone, we've seen the villain of the story destroying a Superman statue in the on the first page. Uh, I think we've seen Lex Luthor do it too, so that's interesting. 
Uh, again, uh, when we get to page three, Superman busts the lead armor, which probably would really have come in handy if he could have known what was coming on later in the issue. So there's irony there. I They don't come out and mention it, so I don't know how intentional it was, but I, I found it, so it couldn't have been too hidden. Um, now, there must be... Now, I have to say, I, I'm not covering the Action Comics issues, so I haven't even looked at them. But I hope that they're giving more coverage to Lana coming to town in those, because you wouldn't know that Lana hasn't been part of the cast forever by the way that they talk to her in this issue. Also, uh, in this issue, you see uh, Josh Coyle drinking milk, excuse me, drinking milk quite often, and I think he takes some pills. No, he doesn't take pills later. Uh, but it, it's a it's a constant running gag through the Bronze Age that Josh Coyle uh, has been getting ulcers, not only from running the newscast, but also uh, because of the antics Clark gets up to running late, uh, to showing up just in the nick of time, or missing things, or leaving during the middle of a newscast, that kind of stuff. Uh, so here they don't actually mention it, but he's drinking milk, obviously, to help his ulcers. Page 5. I don't know if the makeup trick would have really worked, but since it's comics, I'll let it go. I, I just think they kind of would have noticed even that he's got makeup on his face. You know, whatever. Uh, but I do find it really weird that um, Josh would send Clark home in the middle of a newscast. Also, okay, then on page seven, I don't know how how well structures work that this way, but I don't know how many can survive with a whole wall missing. Uh, usually, a lot of the structural integrity is based on the wall being there, and this one's got two missing, so I don't know how Star Star Labs hasn't collapsed yet, but, you know, whatever. I do a lot of whatevers on this show. I am sorry about that. Uh, but on page 9, Superman sees Titano uh, in shadow form, of course, and gets hit by the beams, and then never even thinks about him the rest of the issue. Granted, that does help leave the mystery for us, but it just seems kind of weird that he wouldn't have mentioned that not only does he have to deal with all this stuff with Atomic Skull or Michaels, who, by the way, Superman notices is Michaels immediately. So the whole voice thing, the whole trick, comic book trick of the voice being disguised because they don't see the face uh, is just thrown away here. But he doesn't mention it at all while he's thinking his way through the tunnels and stuff, which just seems kind of odd for this era of comics. Oh, let's see. I, I I do, again, think that some of these ways that they get Superman to basically get the rocket set up on his own is a little far-fetched, but also pretty ingenious, a pretty ingenious idea. I don't know that it really plays out very well, but it's a, it, was, it was a very cool idea. And the goop that he gets on him reminds me of the... Uh, oh, what's the name of that? That putty stuff that Toy Man hits him with in the first episode of Superman the Animated Series. Goopy Goo, I think it is, that kind of covers him, and he has to do the super speed thing. This kind of get, uh, gives me that same impression. It kind of gets on him, and Superman cannot get rid of it. and looks like it's trying to squeeze him or something. I don't know. Uh, let's see. Moving right along. Dr. Clyburn looks good in tights. Just saying. Sorry, Anna. Uh, if it helps, so does Superman, I guess. Uh, um, and of course, we've got this awesome cliffhanger. Okay, so Superman has been knocked unconscious. He can't defend himself in any way. And a giant, up, mad-looking mo uh, monkey, ape, whatever, Titano, is coming in now. Now we know Titano has kryptonite vision. All he has to do is use it on Superman, and Superman could die without being able to defend himself. So that's a pretty, pretty cool cliffhanger. And the fact that you, the listener, have to either find the issue and read it yourself, or wait a month until I cover it. I mean, you. This this is the best I can do to make it feel like you're reading these comics in the seventies. 
because you literally will have to wait a month before I tell you what the conclusion or before we covered the conclusion to this story, or at least the next part. This is probably another one of Pasco's patented four-part stories. I wonder, see, they didn't have, I wonder if there was as much a complaining, I don't, I haven't noticed it in the email, in the letters columns, but it amazes me that there hasn't been um, more complaining, because about, of course, you're only getting three letter, three to four letters in issues, so and maybe they're just weeding those out. But there hasn't been more complaints about the fact that all the to just about every story since Pasco came on has taken about four issues to complete. I know that was a huge deal when the people kept saying that they've got the stories running across all four Superman titles, or it's just a continuous story. There's no beginning, middle, and end. And then when they started getting that, it was because they were writing to the trades, and now then they didn't like that either. And I'm just surprised they're not. I mean, this is the time when you couldn't be certain that you would get the next issue at the newsstand still. So the fact that they're doing four-part stories, you've got to have a pretty good newsstand. But, like I said, that's it for me this uh, for this episode. Well, for the most part, anyway. And next up, J. David Weeder is stopping by on his way to monitor duty to tell us all about another classic issue of DC Comics Presents. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice... costume ejects from his ring and in a blur of motion police scientist Barry Allen becomes the Flash through the magic alchemy of nature's most awesome sources of energy Ray Palmer, a sonic physicist becomes the Atom by authority of the mystic guardians of the universe on the far distant planet Oa Al Jordan's test pilot becomes the Green Lantern Welcome to another installment of Dave Weeder Presents, looking at the Bronze Age team-ups of the Man of Steel with the wide world of DC heroes. Each episode, I pluck an issue of DC Comics Presents to talk about, and to answer Russell Bragg's question of how I choose which issues to cover, it was actually very easy. I just looked at who Superman was teaming up with, and if it was an important character or one that I wanted to talk about, I picked that issue. And then I just put them in chronological order. It's not the most scientific, but it works. And this time, I am talking about Starman. No, no, not Ted Knight, not Jack Knight, but a lesser-known Starman. This Starman is Prince Gavin, who first appeared in Adventure Comics 467 in a tale drawn by the amazing, spectacular Steve Ditko. Maybe you've heard of him, he co-created Spider-Man. That began a feature by Ditko following the star-spanning adventures of Gavin, written by Paul Levitz. Levitz returns with our issue, issue 36 of DC Comics Presents, to finish out Gavin's adventures after the feature was left kind of open-ended. Ditko does not return for this issue. Instead, we're treated to art by Jim Starlin for a tale entitled Whatever Happened to Starman. The story serves to fill in any blanks by opening with a bit of an extended prologue. Prince Gavin stands by the coffin of his recently deceased sister, who was the previous Emperor Clarissa. No, she does not explain it all. Gavin reminisces about how he was once thrown out of an airlock into space to remove him from contention for the throne. But instead of, you know, dying in the void of space, he was found by the alien Mentor. Just go with it. Mentor trained Gavin and gave him a pair of gauntlets to control his solar powers, creating the space hero Starman. Along with his lady love, Maria, Starman kept Clarissa protected and on the throne by defeating the villainous Lord Protector Oswin. But Mentor was banished from our reality for interfering, leaving behind his mystic staff. That was when Starman returned to his homeworld, found his sister dead, and became Emperor. So that's a short, sweet rundown for our purposes. After burying his sister, Gavin heads back to his throne world to find it pretty much destroyed, most likely by his sister's murderer. And the monster who did this has taken Starman's love, Maria. So Starman heads into space to hunt down the assassin and runs right into the ghostly form of Obi-Wan... No, wait. I'm seeing, I mean the ghostly form of Mentor. Mentor really doesn't offer much help, being a ghost and all, but he does send a beam across space to summon help for Starman's cause, and says something about the Empire must fall. You know, that whole thing. After the ghost of Mentor vanishes, Starman heads down to the surface of a nearby planet and finds Maria, but he also finds the villain that he's seeking, and crap, it's Mongul. 
There's a brief battle of wills between Mongol and Starman, and, well, Starman loses. He ends up trapped in a cube, shrunk down without his staff or his gauntlets. Starman stays trapped for a while before help finally arrives in the form of Superman. Having followed Mentor's light beam, Superman has found Starman and deduces that Mongul is the enemy that they are facing. Well, way to put that together. Starman is returned to normal size and explains that the Empire's tyrannical control stems from the crown itself, which can only be removed from the wearer by death. The crown is connected to a massive planet-destroying doomsday weapon, you know, those whole things, which was pretty much the Empire's main control agent. And since Mongul has the crown, and Superman isn't going to kill, the Man of Steel convinces Gavin that they simply have to destroy the crown's power source. The Starman-Superman duo split up, with Superman facing Mongul in combat, while Starman flies to the cosmic power source of the crown. Both are successful in their endeavors, meaning that Mongul is powerless and planets of the Empire are now free to do what they want and they leave the solar system with starship engines. Yes, they're planets with starship engines. I'm good with that. Starman and Myria are reunited without an Empire to rule, and Starman reveals that the power source is the same technology as Mentor's people, which is why Mentor trained Gavin for this very act. It was and has been Starman's mission to free the Empire all along. And the issue ends with Superman flying back home, leaving the universe short one empire, but gaining one happy hero. And this story gained a happy reader. Sure, the opening crams a lot of info in, but it feels like it belongs there. It isn't just a data dump for the sake of a data dump. And ultimately, I'm glad Gavin got a revisit. His story wasn't left completely unfinished, but it did need that nice bow tied on it just to put the punctuation mark in. As an ongoing tale in an anthology book, Starman didn't have the marquee status or stability of a regular ongoing. So if readers weren't digging it, Starman could be out without much hassle. And it had a moderately solid run, but not one that really spells out epic space opera. This issue kind of remedies that. With the full length of the issue to explore Gavin and the ramifications of his stories, it lets the epicness breathe a bit. And while Superman doesn't come into the equation until the final act, it plays out as it should. Not only is this a conclusion of sorts to Gavin's story, but it also ties it into the DC Universe as a whole by making it a Superman team-up. Now, while I do wish Ditko would have returned to keep the style consistent with the series, Starlin's not much to really scoff at at all, and it would be nitpicking to really go into that. My only thought was, had I read this as a child, this iteration of Starman would have captured my imagination, and my natural reaction would simply be, more... I mean, space adventures with a huge empire and an awesome character with awesome powers? What's not to like here? Adding Superman to the mix only increased the awesomeness and gave Starman a proper place in the DC Universe. It's a well-done issue that serves as an epilogue and conclusion to one story and a graceful team-up that successfully avoids making it a story shoehorned in for vanity reasons. Now, Gavin was originally believed to have died during Crisis on Infinite Earths, but it was later revealed that his essence, his power, was imbued into Will Payton, the Starman of the late 80s, early 90s. In his bid to combine everybody who ever bore the name Starman, James Robinson revisited Gavin, in a manner of speaking, during the 1990s Jack Knight Starman series. But, in a nutshell, that is DC Comics 36. Thank you for the well wishes, I'm definitely feeling better. And I will now hand it back to Charlie Niemeyer, because as usual, I'm late for monitor duty. <coughs> Man, he's late to monitor duty just about every episode, isn't he? I hope he doesn't get in trouble for that. But anyway, thank you, David, for risking punishment yet again on our behalf. Next episode, we finally reach our milestone of 100 episodes. And to celebrate, Dave will be joining me on the main part of the episode, and I'm not going to make the DC Comic Presents thing next episode, to cover an issue so big, so awesome, so cool, so already announced, but I'm not going to say it again here just to leave a little bit of surprise, that it takes two podcasters to cover it. And if everything goes according to schedule, it should actually be out on time for once. So another miracle is coming down the pike. We'll see you then. You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weir. Show notes can be found at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com, as well as links to the RSS and iTunes feeds and more. You can also find the show on Stitcher Smart Radio, as well as Facebook, where you can get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of both the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com and the Comics Podcast Network 
at www.comicspodcasts.com. Please make sure to check out both sites for more great podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless. Listen to our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Blackberry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. This episode of Superman and the Bronze Age is brought to you by the loving taste of Sam's Choice Cola. You can't get enough of Sam's Choice.